Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. I'd like to do a little free association exercise with you. I'm going to say three words, and I'd like you to speak or write down all the words that come to mind as a result. No filtering, no judgment. Ready? American pop culture. Go. Okay, here's what I got. Kanye, Trump, gun, meme, YouTube. That's pretty sad, I suppose. And maybe it anecdotally, non-scientifically supports a claim made by my guest today that culture and music, once mutually interdependent, have become totally unmoored and lost in the age of globalism. And that the sounds we make and market today just don't have anything like the healing power that was music's purpose for thousands of years. Christopher C. King is a writer, Grammy-winning music producer, and something of an ethnomusicologist. His obsessive collecting of rare 78s led him to discover the music of Ipiros, a region of northwestern Greece. To his ears, the playing of Kitsos Harisiades, Alexis Zumbas, and other Epirote masters, virtually unknown outside of... Ipiros. Okay. Virtually... Okay. <laughs> I know, it's tough. All it's right, tough. all right, all right. Ipiros, had an elemental power transcending even that of Delta Blues legends like Robert Johnson and Skip James, and he'll correct me if I got that wrong in just a second. In Ipiros, King found something that he thought had been lost in the world, a musical culture with unbroken roots stretching back into prehistory, and some clues perhaps as to why we make music in the first place. Christopher's new book is Lament from Ipiros, an odyssey into Europe's oldest surviving folk music. Welcome to Think Again, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. You have been collecting, first of all, what you mostly collect are 78s, yeah? Is that correct? That's all I collect. That's all you collect? Yeah. Since? Well, since I was 15. Yeah? Yeah. What, was the, what were the first ones you were excited about? Well, I write about it in the book, but it was this um, discovery that I made on my grandparents' farm in southwest Virginia in Allegheny Mountains, where... Um, my grandfather was getting ready to burn down a sharecropper shack right. right before we doused it with kerosene and dropped a match on it. There was an old Victrola that was falling in upon itself in the middle of the room, and right next to it was a, a lidded box. And I grabbed the lidded box and carried it outside out of curiosity before it burned to the ground. But inside of that box were discs by Blind Willie Johnson and Joe and Cleoma Falcon and Edward Claiborne and other pre-war blues and gospel artists. And my father was a 78 collector. He was a collector of everything, a oh, much okay. better collector than I was. And uh, he helped me wash the records and then play them back. But the second that I heard that music, in particular the Blind Willie Johnson, I knew that I had found the only thing I wanted to listen to. that time would would blind willie johnson have he wouldn't have only been on 78s at that point there were oh no he, he only recorded on 78 oh, yeah okay. i mean he he, he died he died shortly after he made his recordings right in, but at that time when you discovered them you oh they would have been on lp but that's the kind of stuff that because i grew up in a very rural place as far away from any source of civilization as you could think of. This is before internet <laughs> days. This is before catalog days. Right, you right. Know, I would never have been able to find an LP of Blind Willie Johnson had I have gone to a big city. Got you. 
Was there actually, like you talk about musical biospheres in your book, basically yeah. like kind of cultural pockets where music where a music has and, a meaning. Yeah, and, well, everything is contextually tied up uh, and bound together uh, such that if you change one little part of one thing, everything else changes. And did that exist in the environment that you grew up in? As I was growing up, it was dying. Right. Yeah, because I mean, as I was growing up, it was the late 70s, early 80s. And even though it was fairly remote from uh, you know things tinkering with it, still uh, it, over the course of uh, a few years, the local the local uh, store which you you would buy your your uh, your uh, vegetables was replaced with a supermarket. You know, once right, you start right. having chains come in, then everything goes to hell. So basically, for you though, the death of music, of authenticity in music, is directly tied to the. Industry, the 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 like it's the encroachment of globalism or modernity or industrialization. All three of those things they they change they, they they change the musical biosphere as well as media. Of course, I mean all of all of it tinkers with it and makes it uh, and makes it lose its potency, its vitality, and its connectedness to other people. Right. Okay. So globalism in the sense that you're taking music from one place, like ripping it out of its context, rootless, and putting it somewhere else where it doesn't have the same meaning? Well, that's one That's one avenue of its losing its potency. Another avenue is that when something, say, what was called a hillbilly music or country music, instead of being the string band-based version that it was with fiddles and banjos and maybe a guitar player, right. suddenly you introduce lap steels and right, drums right, right. and amplification and costumes, and then it just goes to hell. And that's about the, that's about the industry's hunger for novelty, basically, right? Make, it's to like, make money. It's yeah, the almighty yeah, yeah. dollar, yeah. Yeah, so you got to have new stuff all the time. So instead yeah. of sticking within... A given tradition, they're all. It has to like whatever it is has to be jazzed up continually. And yeah, so. and some of it is, is is a result of the synchronization where you do have two cultures that mesh together, and so you got to make mo both cultures happy. And in some instances, like with Cajun music, that was a very organic uh, forming of music. But then you start to introduce other elements and that don't really belong, and then it just falls apart. And I mean, you and you talk about this in the book. You know, yeah. you're aware that there are people that feel that there has been music made since 1930 outside of Iperos that has, you know, authenticity and that whatever, but that for you, it's just not. Well, it's not that I'm going to claim that it's inauthentic and I do bend over backwards to try to nuance this. Yeah. I just say that it, ha it, it, it there is a range, there's a gradation between what is authentic and inauthentic. And you can say something is more authentic and, or less authentic. Uh, based on whatever particular form that you are that you, you you designate as being the starting point, right? Right. right, right so you right. have this early string band music that was recorded in at the turn of the century, and then you compare that to something that was being played in Brooklyn in 2017. You know, you can very easily point out, well, this is less authentic than that, based on this being the criteria that I judge everything by. It's rare that we talk about music on this show. It just doesn't, you know, often it's books and literature or whatever. Today, I had another taping with a guy writing a nonfiction book. He's a sci-fi, he's a Hugo Award-winning sci-fi author who wrote a book about the influence of sci-fi on music in the 1970s, right? Right. He's very much through the lens of David Bowie and talking about specifically a conscious move toward inauthenticity, you know, that they were deliberately 
going into costumes and creating art that was trying to transcend any sense of kind of cultural roots or yeah i mean i i I guess it just depends upon what paradigm you're coming from i mean for for me when i think of when i think of early folk music doesn't have to be just american folk music can be any it can be ukrainian or polish or greek that music had a lot less to do with uh the artistic expression of the individual but rather a collective memory of what music ought to have been like within that region or sub-region or village right and so to me, like music that might involve, involve Bowie, I mean that that's a very personal, idiosyncratic expression of one's aesthetic. You know that that, that that's right. something that has nothing to do with a community that you were raised in uh, that's been around for twenty generations. No, if so. anything, it might create a temporary community or sort of right, a yeah. new, new kind of community right. among the fans. The, the fans, yeah, the day, or people right. that happen to live in one certain part of one urban area. Right, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. So you're in. Istanbul in what year when you discover this uh, music of Iperos? Uh, about seven years ago. So that would have been 2011. Right. right. And you're on the Asian side, the Anatolian yeah, side. Yeah, we pass the over the Bosphorus and go to the, to the Anatolian side in one of the little medieval markets. And it happened to be the market that was called the Street of Gramophones. And that's just what it was. It was a, it was an alleyway where both sides of the street was nothing but shops with old wind-up phonograph players and stacks of discs. My wife is Turkish, and yeah. we're going to Turkey this summer again. And I'm, I, I, I don't know if it's changed significantly since seven years ago, but if not, I'd I'd like to oh, see I'll give you the street. address of the man. Yeah. Uh, of, of the man. Uh, I kind of, I kind of feel like probably on that side of of Istanbul, it ain't changed much. Yeah, probably right. Yeah. So you're, so you're in there, and you're like, you, you know, he's taking you for just any old curious passerby, and then at some <laughs> point. He lets you into the sanctum, sanctorum. Yeah, he realizes that I'm a collector just like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, you know, collectors, we have very, we have a very limited and stunted emotional response to things, and we also have a very limited vocabulary. So we do understand when, when we are talking to another collector. You talk about it in the book a bit and how this, you know, this is, it's almost like a, a division of the human species, you guys, like the specificity and the need. and I think that the collecting impulse, that which causes us to want to um, both acquire and then organize objects is actually a genetic trait. And I would argue with you that you yourself are a collector. You do have a collection of things. You do organize certain things in your Mm. life. It just may not be that, you know, you'll go digging around in the bottom of a chicken coop, scratching around on chicken shit in order to find (laughs) some 78s and then clean them and then want to wish to upgrade to a better copy. But you yourself do collect things and organize them in a similar fashion. You're looking for a thing, though. Like, I mean, what you're getting out of the stuff that you love, you know, that you collect that means something to you. I'm trying to get meaning. There's meaning that you're trying to get out of it. So it's not, I mean, it's not the thing itself, but then there is also the thing itself. Well, I mean, yeah, once again, (laughs) I'd like to claim that I am a better collector than others. (laughs) I mean, it's not that I'm obsessed with the monetary value nor with the rarity. It's rather I'm seeking to be able to discern this pattern that I've been hungering after. And that pattern happens to be produced by these objects, which are unique, that contain this musical information you can't get anywhere else. Right. So, yeah, my lust yeah. is my lust is for the thing behind the object, not the object itself. And so the first music you hear from Iperos is... 
Kitsos Harisiadas. I got this small stack of 78s, and as I was listening through them in in rapt abandon uh, behind my turntable, for hours on end, I became to, I was able to discern two different styles of music before me. One was this kind of unhinged isopolyphonic singing with multi-instrumentals that had almost no discernible scalar pattern. And that stuff turned out to be Albanian music from Southern Albania. On the other hand, there was this music that was very plaintive and sort of seeking and calming. Um, that also involved unfamiliar scales, but there was something very distinct behind the music, almost a medicinal quality. And that happened to be the stuff from Iparos, and that and most of those recordings were by Kitsos Hrisiadis that I found. Yeah, no, it grabbed me by the neck and it wouldn't let me go. I mean, I I mean, I have a I have about five thousand seventy eights in my collection, and a goodly portion of them are non-American discs. So I'd heard Ukrainian and Polish, and of course, I had some Greek, but it was either Rambetico, which is the kind of urban badass underworld music, or I had stuff that was just plain demotica folk music from the mainland. But I had heard nothing that fell within this category of music. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, structurally, it wouldn't have been completely alien to that. No, other because stuff. the scales, yeah, 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 yeah. the scales, uh, since your wife is Turkish, she would know that there are certain scales that are utilized in Turkish music, which are derived from uh, an Arabic theory, makimi. Right. And those, of course, either came from Greek music theory or derived from Arabic music theory, but one way or another, this body of scales and approaches towards music, you could just wholesale categorize as being Arabic. It doesn't matter if it derived ultimately from earlier Greek theory or from uh, or from Turkish theory, but it was collectively known as this Arabic music body. So yeah, I can understand the scales when I heard them. It's not one of my collections, it's not part of my music, but the one thing that your listeners would instantaneously recognize as being a Western piece of music that happens to utilize classical Arabic scales, it's the song Miserlou. You know, the, the surf song. No. Pulp Fiction. Oh, okay, right. Yep, okay, you yep, know, yep, yep, the, yep, the yep. violent song. Yeah. Right, sure. Yeah, that's Miserlou. That's oh, okay. The, yeah, practically everybody knows it, and yet it's Miserlou is a traditional Rambetico piece of Greek popular music from the 20s that was adapted for a surf song. So, Iperos enters your life, and you, you end up spending a lot of time over there yeah. and, and really immersing yourself in that culture. Had that kind of thing happened before in your collecting life? Well, I mean, I, I also happen to have a really, really nice collection of pre-war Cajun records, probably the second best private collection out there. And so, yeah, I would go down to Louisiana and visit fiddlers and hang out with musicians and play music with them. But I realized at that point that Cajun music was on the outs. I mean, the, the handful of people that play it in the traditional sense they they don't get hired to play because they they don't make enough noise. Mm-hmm. They don't like drum kits with their with their music. So, and the same thing with Appalachian old time music. I mean, I'm that's, I'm from Virginia. I haven't left Virginia, and so it was very easy for me to run out and try to find the last living examples of this music. But the difference between Cajun music and Appalachian old time music and the music of Iparos was that going there, I discovered 
it wasn't dead. I mean, shit, I, there, there were like 50 families there. That's all they did was teach their children how to play the music that they knew the villagers wanted to be able to hear. Let's talk a little bit about this region and why it has managed to remain, you know, musically and culturally relatively unspoiled. Because, I mean, I know there are some people, and you talk about this as well in the book, that there are, you know, there are some people who turn their noses up at some of the newer iterations of the music that happen, but but mostly unbroken. Yeah, I mean, the one reason why it's retained its uh, relevancy as well as, I guess you could call relative purity, although there's nothing that's pure, is that first of all, it's a very isolated area. You gotta, you have to have a commitment to get there. It's not, when you think of going on vacation in Greece, it is not the Greek landscape that you imagine. It's not sandy beaches and, and sun and uh, uh, relaxing and, you know, dipping your, your uh, vegetables in tzatziki. It's, <laughs> it's a hard, hard, rough, mountainous region with uh, a lot of areas which are uh, completely devoid of vegetation. Uh, it's high up, high, high up in the mountains. What is the um, mountain range there? The Pindos. It's the Pindos, Pindos and it's yeah. the north, northwestern Greece. Northwestern between... corner of Greece. And on one side, you've got the uh, Vikos Gorge, which is, uh, I think you could fit three Grand Canyons inside of the Vikos Gorge. So that kind of prevented it from getting invasions from that side. And then, of course, to the north is Albania, which is also very difficult to traverse. So you don't get a lot of invasions that way. And... Truth be told, why would you want to invade a region which, you know, was pretty poor both in vegetative matter as well as in mineral matter? So right. uh, it was kind of left alone. Although it was partially held by the Ottomans. Well, right? I mean, of course, yeah. all of Greece, yeah, 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 all of Greece yeah, yeah. was held by the Ottoman Turks. However, uh, the people of Iporos, particularly the people of the Zagori subregion, which is the region I like the most, that happened to be the wealthiest of all the uh, regions of Greece at the time because there were very industrious merchants who traveled abroad and started uh, businesses, banking, uh, mercantile uh, industries. So they sent their money back to the villages. And of course, the Turks were able to collect it as revenue. And so the Turks, by I guess that age old proverb, why mess with a place when they're giving you what you want? So that region actually was kind of under a semi-autonomous rule. As long as they gave up a certain amount of dough uh, every year, right. the, the Turkish Ottomans, they had no business going in there. So they, they even the, the Greeks at that point, they had their own police force, their, their, own, their own militia that, that governed the area. So okay. it was pretty hands-off. And so... The tradition that you discovered there, let's talk a little bit about the, and I will mispronounce this, panagiri. panagiri? Pa, okay, so there's the singular is panagiri. Panagiri. Panagiri, and then the and plural is panagiriya. These are festivals that are... Uh, it's not quite a festival. Uh, I mean, it, it's a misnomer. I mean, yeah, there is a festive atmosphere to it. The What religion are you brought up originally? <laughs> um sort of Jutalian atheist. Jutalian atheist. Okay, yeah. Christ. Okay, that's going to be hard for me to penetrate. <laughs> I mean, my mom's uh, Roman Catholic. She dragged us to church. So. Yeah, well, I mean, okay, I guess the only way I can relate to it is to, like, harken back to, like, my white trash Protestant background. <laughs> at, at our churches, we had these things called homecomings. So once a year, anybody who was originally born into that church would come back 
And then all the families would bring covered dishes ranging from 30 different iterations of fried chicken to 30 different iterations of macaroni salad. And then everybody would bring their food there and then you would eat and then occasionally there would be music that'd be played in the, uh, under the trees, sometimes string band music. And people would just kind of congregate and talk among themselves. So a panigiri is kind of a, uh, an event that takes place in a village such that that village has their own patron saint for that church. And on those days allocated to that patron saint of that church, there would be an event where people would have food. They would have tsipro, which is basically Greek moonshine. They would have wine, and then they would have music. And then during the daylight, the event would be sanctified by the priests, and then the priests would leave because basically what happened afterwards could not be <laughs> sanctified. It was primarily dancing, eating, drinking, feasting, uh, sort of a communal celebration of one another, of the unity of places. And in Iparos, as, is, as throughout all of Greece, there are minute variations from one village to another, and in some instances, one church celebration within a village to another church celebration in a village. It can last one day, it can last three days. It can only take place during the daytime. Sometimes it can take place all night long for three days. Mm-hmm. And among the more among the more interesting things that I observed was last year at a very small panigiri in uh, the Pagoni region, which is in right right next to Albania. First of all, the food, the drink was completely free. In fact, the villagers brought it to the tables. Secondly, the musicians played without amplification and walked around. But thirdly, and most interesting, if there happened to be one villager who had developed bad blood with another villager during the course of that year, they came up and they embraced and then they danced together in order to dissolve this feeling of ill will. I'd never seen that before. However, that happens to be one of the various manifestations of Panagiria. That's really interesting. It's difficult to trace, I guess, but in some cases, they're probably pagan roots or elements. Oh, no, man. There's definitely pagan yeah, roots. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I it mean, really that... depends on who you ask. I mean, some villagers are extraordinarily proud and will rap, you know, will, will, will raps rhapsodic for hours over the various pagan elements of the Panigiria. There are others who will just say no. There's right, no right, paganism right. involved here. So it depends on who you ask. Right. I mean, what we think of as a bacchanal, you know, there is that element. In yeah, some there's that element. I mean, yeah. like, e- even at a relatively tame Panigiria, like the one I go to in Vitsa, uh, at a certain appropriate hour, namely 4.30 in the morning, <laughs> uh, on the last day, the villagers call only those songs and dances that are heard only in that village, and the men will take off their shirts and mm. douse themselves with ice water and dance around in a bacchanalia frenzy. Uh, <laughs> now, whether or not that's a, a recreation or a spontaneous instance of something, or whether that's something that harkens back thousands of years, I'm not to say. I just know right. that it does resemble something that's pretty damn pagan. It's disputable what is pagan and what is not pagan. Right. But one thing which is indisputable is that there is evidence of this religious synchronization of things throughout the region, not just in Iparos, but all throughout Greece, as well as Asia Minor. So, for instance, in a village only about 40 kilometers from the border with Iparos, there was a village there that had um, a statuette of the Greek goddess Demeter, the goddess with a thousand breasts around her. And they took that statuette (laughs) and put it inside of a church. 
And that statuette became an object of veneration, and they started to worship St. Demetrius. St. Demetrius. So, yeah, it's there. It is there. You can't really argue against it. I'm not even sure how to ask this question, but like, how far back does this music go in this region? You talk about it a little bit in the music that's played at the Panayiri. Yeah, I mean, as far as like the current incarnation of what is played is relatively recent. 1830s would be right. would be a good guess to say that this is how the 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 actual company the group would have appeared but when you're talking about the scalar structure and the melodies and the use of uh, these Arabic Greek scales you then have to go back a lot earlier and this would have even been prior to the Turkish occupation the thing which is very interesting to me which basically ties into why I claim that this is the oldest folk, surviving folk music in Europe is twofold. First, you have the Mirloi, right, which is a lamentation that was originally sung over the graves of the departed. You can read Mirloi in the works of Homer. You can also find them etched on tombstones that are 2,000 years old. Uh, you can even find a tombstone which has a Mirloi with musical notation inscribed line by line. So that in and of itself, that kind of um, lamentation singing harkens back 2,000 years. In, in lyric form, it kind of takes, the, it often takes forms like, you've gone, I, we can no longer see you. Yeah. Why have you left me in this state? Right. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of it's blaming, blaming the departed. <laughs> right. And so in that instance, you can certainly say that the Miloi that is played in Iparos and sung in those regions is directly connected to what was going on 2,000 years ago. interesting thing is that the flutes that have been found uh, in Ipros, in some of the villages that have been under archaeological survey, the flutes that were found, which would have been shepherd's flutes, contain the same fingering of the holes that are found in the same flutes that are 50 years old, 30 years old, involving the Negris scale, which is a unique scale, which proves to me that instrumental music entered the region about 2,000 years after the end of the last ice age with the shepherding culture when when shepherding was basically introduced originally to like make the make the sheep make go the livestock where you want move them to in go. one way or another yeah, yeah it's the concept of skaros which is an instrumental tune that is played in every village at every panayiri and it's essentially uh, an instrumental adaptation of a shepherd's air which the shepherd would have used originally to direct his his sheep to go take water or to go under some trees or to rest. And the shepherd knew how to create these notes in this scale pattern to make the sheep do one thing or do another. So in the village context, the musicians playing the clarinet and the violin, they play a similar set of scales which sort of cause a very attentive listener to become perfectly relaxed, mm. to become perfectly receptive to the music. Music soothes the savage beast. Right, yeah, <laughs> it, make, it makes us drink water or tipero. <laughs>
So I mean, but those are sort of so those are sort of the two, as you describe them, like healing modes of the Panayiri yeah. songs. That there's the the Skaros, which is about calming, about a, maybe a sense of forgiveness, tranquility, in a way, yeah. tranquility, and then the Mirloi, Mirloi, which are sort of more cathartic. They are very the, cathartic. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they're powerful, powerful medicine because. I cannot recall a single instance when I've heard a Miraloi played in any of the villages where there were not villagers weeping during the performance. So yeah, it, it, it is it is a uh, a piece of music which is intended to cause you to have complete emotional release in a in a way of catharsis. Whereas Escaros does something different; it gives you a sense of tranquility and well being and belonging. And neither piece is in, neither piece of music is intended for dancing. It's intended for introspection, for listening. And the moonshine, which Tsiporo? Tsiporo, yeah. Tsiporo clearly plays an important role here as For well. For me, it does, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's, it's an indigenous form of Greek moonshine. And of course, that kind of drink is produced and available throughout all of Greece, as well as other parts of Europe and, and in Turkey, like in, uh, in India, it's uh, Arap. And uh, among the, uh, the Turks and other people, they call it Raki. And when you're on Crete, they call it rachi. But it's basically a Greek, it is a distillate of the uh, grape leavings, the must. Right. Raka, as we drink it in Turkey, it has um, a strong anise flavor, but that's not yeah, the see, case. Yeah, that's bullshit. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, that, now when, you, when you drink uh, Tsiporo in, uh, in Iparos, it is straight, no anise. There's, there's no flavoring. It is straight, pure uh, essence of the, of the alcohol. The stuff that I have been hauling around with me in New York is about 187 proof. Whoa. Yeah. And flammable. It, yeah. It, 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 it's, yeah, perfectly flammable, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's definitely uh, an experience enhancer. I really don't think you need to have any substance whatsoever to experience experience spiritual transcendence. But you know, every little bit helps. <laughs> Panayiri are they're cementing the their, the culture of the village together. They're keeping the people together. They're helping them process their emotional lives. I mean, it's like serving a psychological function. Yeah. It's essential. Yeah, very to few their things lives, in so. Greece works nowadays. The the few things that do work, according to a very good friend of mine, are panigiria, music, family, and community. Everything else is broken down. Mm. And you could even say that's pretty much that <laughs> universalized across yeah. the world. But yeah, there at least music still serves a very similar function that it would have served 2,000, 2,500 years ago. The people I know, and myself included, you have to kind of hunt around to fulfill the things that the Panayiri seem to fulfill. I mean, it's not like you ever quite get it, but people in various fragmentary forms seem to try to put this together, you know, by joining or forming communities or... Yeah, it's a tough call. I I, I don't don't want to be anybody that condemns modernity, although I guess I do quite a bit in the book. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like I was riding the subway with a friend of mine, and he was explaining to me that there were 15 million people here give or take in New York. Yeah, that's probably And I thought to myself, well, shit, if I go on the subway every day for the rest of my life, twice a day, I'll never meet the same person twice. So therefore, it seems like there's this sheer impossibility of ever forming a legitimate, deep human connection with anyone. You're very close together, and yet people are very far apart often. Yeah, and we hunger for that. You know, you and I, we, we are just we're we're human animals, and so we do have certain needs. And one of those basic needs is contact. 
It's it's um, it's like some sort of interaction. Like you and I, we both really want to interact, but how the hell can we do it when we are stuck in some sort of circumstance which prevents that? For you, it's coming from the music. You're finding that in these communities that you're yeah. intersecting with through collecting and now a kind of extended family, as it were, in yeah. Iperos, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, everybody there knows everybody. In a, I mean, of course, everything is a double-edged sword well, because they know everything about you, but they also know everything about you. Yes, that's, that's the small town <laughs> yeah. paradox, isn't it? Yeah, what do they make of you over there? I mean, by at this point, they must they must they must respect you. I mean, yeah. Well, you, I mean, uh, I didn't go culture. after that. I mean, I, I mean, at this point, I think an awful lot of them when they see me, they just go, "Oh, Chris, it just <laughs> he's, he he's here because he's like clockwork. He comes back at this time, he leaves at that time." Yeah, I mean, there's very few that now treat me as a sheer novelty. Yeah, and I was adopted by one village, and a, a large group of people there want me to move there to continue my work. So, yeah, I feel wanted and Would embraced. Would you move to Iperos? Would that if you pay for my ticket, man. <laughs> yeah, you're, talk, you're barking up the wrong tree, bro. I know. Let's, uh, let's go to the second part of the show where we talk about these surprise clips and who the hell knows what we talk about. Okay. This is... Uh, called What is the Biggest Problem Historians Face? And uh, David Kennedy is the expert. I think the biggest challenge that the field of history faces going forward, well, there are at least two of them I can think of. One is the sense, because we live in a society that is so dynamic and so fluid and porous and mobile and future-oriented and in which change happens with such rapidity, that it's an easy assumption to make that the past is irrelevant to us and we don't need to understand it. So that's, that's a kind of a constant, it seems to me, of, uh, of uh, being preoccupied with the importance of history in a highly dynamic society such as ours. Is this convincing people the subject is important at all? So that's, that's one challenge going forward. The second is the, the nature of the documentary record from which we professional historians build their accounts of the past. And the, it used to be, in fact, the further you go back in time, the, the, the time of the Egyptians or classical Greece or what have you, the problem there is the paucity of documentation and the, the difficulty of wringing anything cogent or comprehensible out of the very fragmentary and, and small, small amount of evidence we have. Today we have just the opposite problem. We have so much evidence and the historical record is so thick and weighty with uh, electronic communication and so on and so forth that sifting through that great Everest of, of documentation to come up with a coherent narrative line or analytical line is just an enormous challenge. And it's, uh, it's one that's building, you might say, almost daily and weekly as we go forward through time. One reason why I guess I detest the modern world so much is that we are confronted with too many choices, too many unnecessary choices. I go to a grocery store and I need to get toilet paper and Jesus Christ, there's like <laughs> 60 different variations. That's one reason why I like uh, Northwestern Greece. If I want toilet paper, there's typically only one variety and it's not there. <laughs> and then secondly, something that he said, which was quite interesting is uh, the further you go back in time, the paucity of documentation that you encounter. That's certainly the case when you come to a music and to a place where there was this enormous black hole where nothing was written. You know, while right. Greece was under Ottoman rule, 
the general public was was illiterate. There was no writing going on. The writing that was taking place was written in Turkish or written in common Greek outside of Greece by Greek scholars living in France and in Germany. And so you you run up against this notion you want to document the panigiri or you want to doc, document what Roma musicians played when and where and how. It ain't there. You have to go by anecdotal evidence and accounts. And when you go into the archaeological record and you try to speculate how music entered into the region, you're often not left with any solid evidence to assert one thing or another, but rather you have to conceive of what the possible answer would be, would be given the small bit of evidence you have. So it, it's right. speculative. It's pure speculative. Right. And the musical record maybe goes back into history even less far than the... The written record. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, recorded technology yeah, yeah. didn't take off until the 1890s. And when people wonder what music sounded like prior to that point, shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you just say, well, I have an instrument, and I know how it was tuned, and I know the scales that were being played. I can try to recreate it for you, and that's the best you can do. But the other thing he said, which made me, it, it, actually, it was on my way here on the subway. I was reading some advertisement for some college, which is obviously here in New York, and it seemed like the pitch for the college was do these things and you'll be on your way towards upward mobility. Right. And once again, this is just because I maybe I have something wrong with my head. But, <laughs> but we are fixated upon upward mobility when, at least among the people that I greatly respect and the people that I get along with in that region, as well as the handful of people that are my friends, upward mobility is not a goal. Uh, what ought to be the goal is getting by right because when you go up there are going to be people under you you know you got to climb over the heads of others what's that going to do to the others i don't know it was just sure. let me with a very Although, sad empty feeling that we are on our way towards upward mobility those ads i mean and those colleges they're preying upon people who have like spent much of their life in like economic straits oh, i would yeah, guess yeah. and in that region of Iparos, I mean, people were Everybody's poor. leaving. Yeah, and, people, <laughs> and there poor, were yeah. exoduses, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Historically, yeah. people trying to get what you might call upward mobility, but including uh, Alexis Zumbas, Alexis Zumbas came Zumbas, to America, yeah. right? Well, he came to America because he had a lot of kids, and he had to feed those kids, and the only way you can do that is to, or, or one of the better ways of doing it is to just leave a place where you can't make much money and go someplace where you can and send the money home. I mean, that's a kind of upward mobility. You're not necessarily stepping on people, but you're trying yeah, to like it is a, better Yeah, it is a species of upward mobility, right? Yeah. yeah, it just seems like it was. it's a strange human obsession in the 21st century that I'm just, that, that seems alien to me nowadays. Like, why, why need so much when you can just get by with just this amount? I mean, I feel like part of it comes down to, yeah, maybe this thing you were saying about the the glut of choices just too much yeah, too you much know choices. so there's a as a result there's a, i think the existential state for people in the modern world even if they're not struggling economically is fear you know yeah, and anxiety and they characterize like, <laughs> i am struggling even though you're not struggling that's the whole thing yeah i mean that's because you do have a certain number of choices and when you want to have more than one thing you have to have the means to get that one thing and so therefore you have to strive forward and upward to do that in order to get more things but regardless of where you go you're still going to say i'm still in dire straits yeah that's right yeah i mean because like, when you go to these villages when I show up, I mean, this is the, this is the funny thing. When I show up, there'll be the Sarkatsan, the, the traditional shepherding families. They'll greet me and they'll bring me like bags of beans and tins of cheese and bottles of tipero and wine. 
olive oil and then other people will come by and they'll drop off bread and vegetables. Other people will drop off a little bit of meat and this will go on not only the whole time, but it's not that I'm the exception. They do that with everybody. I mean, it's almost like a sort of a very communal egalitarian system of existing among one another. And it's not like they have a lot to spare. No, no. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and also that tradition of hospitality, speaking yes. of things <laughs> yeah, that reach yeah. reach back into prehistory in yeah, that region. Yeah, it's I an mean, unwritten code that you treat your neighbor as you would yourself. And it's not just a Christian thing. It reaches back into pagan prehistory, the same yeah. idea. Right. If I'm not mistaken, they used to believe that it might be a god. You know, you're just it's in case a, it's, it's a, a god. Menace. Yeah, you know, yeah, it like could be a god. Yeah, he's showing <laughs> up. Are you not going to give him a bag of beans? <laughs> the other part or another part of what you do is sharing this music. You know, you produce... You say how many how many records did you produce? Uh, 439 because I just produced the Kitsos Sericiatis. That's a hell of a lot of records. Yeah, but they're not. It's not all Greek. Only, right, right, only, right, right, only right. the last 20 or so, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but the others, I mean, does is it all, it's all as a stuff. result of your collecting? It's all old yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, as, yeah. It's, a, it's an impulse from me collecting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you are, in a sense, playing a kind of historian's role without question. I mean, taking this music that would otherwise be lost or not really heard right. by a lot of people. Right, but I'm not, a, I'm not a hard-boiled no, historian. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, but I mean, there is, I'm just saying, there is something in, in the stuff you do that is about retrieving things that, that might otherwise be lost, you know? Yeah, well, a lot of it is sharing. You know, I'm, yeah, you I, write. That's the end of your book. You yeah, write about. I, I mean, uh, that, that's the whole thing. Is that when you, you know, I'm 46, and so when I started doing this kind of thing 21 years ago, I think, yeah, obviously, I make a little bit of bread off of it. Not much bread, just <laughs> enough to get by. But really, the impulse that spurns each and everything is, I, I really want to share something that I found that's moving and beautiful and meaningful to me. Maybe it could be to you. But that also has to be a kind of like ambivalent impulse in a way, because I notice you, you mentioned at one point in the book, you fuzz out the name of a, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, well, a, of a town because you don't want people, you don't want the yeah. hordes descending, you know, the sort of hipsters from Brooklyn. It is a tight line to walk, man. You know, <laughs> uh, you, know you tell somebody a really great story, but you don't want to tell them where they got to go. Uh, you know, yeah. I'm thinking about like Rye Cooter and Buena Vista Social Club, right? And right. suddenly Buena Vista Social Club, who are these dudes that you love you know. something so much that you ruin it. <laughs> you love something so much that you ruin it. You know, it's like uh, that Boonwell film, um, Obscure Object of Desire, where a man obsesses over one woman who's a virgin on a train throughout the entire film until he finally seduces her and she ceases to be a virgin. And then when the camera frames back on her it's a different woman mm. she's changed right and that's what i really hope that i'm not doing to this music is that you know i'm introducing enough interest you know it's a balancing act i would like people to be able to appreciate it to find meaning in it to maybe find some sort of healing uh healing potential in it i don't want them to go there and then make it different and i do want the greeks that are there to realize that what they don't normally pay attention to, which are these splendors in their own backyard, that if they don't tend to it, that one day the well will one run dry. So yeah, it's a very it's a it's a very nuanced balancing act as you go forward trying to share this music in a certain way, but also not not share it to the point that you have to 
change it, that it gets changed as a result of your activity. But you do, and you do say at the end of the book, you say, I, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase, but you know, that sharing is the mo is sort of the best human impulse, basically. It was, it is the best human impulse, and it was the impulse that was shared with these villagers with me. And then, and at the same time, the authenticity, the connection, the community that exists within a musical biosphere like Iperos depends on a kind of, I don't know, not, I don't want to call it selfishness, but a not sharing too too much with the outside world. And yeah, there has to be there has to be some sort of insular character to any music in order to keep it preserved through time. Right. And I do think that it is still like that there in certain pockets. And there are certainly some villages which will continue to preserve it in a better fashion than others because they are more insular. Innovation happens within these traditions, though, at the hands of individual It does, artists, yeah. And like, some are good innovations, and yeah, some yeah. are very bad. You right. know, like amplification right. is bad. <laughs> Electric guitar is bad. You know, maybe introducing a particular uh, transient note during a scale, mm -hmm. not so bad. The other interesting thing that I wanted to touch on is is the fact that the Roma people, the gypsies, yeah. you know, they're, they're primarily... The musicians historically, in this they were the primary musicians for that region. The way in which the social strata was that you had the wealthy landowners and merchants on the very top of the social ladder. At the very bottom rung of the ladder, you had the Roma, who were basically looked down upon and given only the most menial tasks, that of like picking up garbage or doing copper work, and making the music. <laughs> Which is the very heart of the culture. Yeah, so it, these like outsiders are absolutely essential absolutely to the fabric essential of the culture. Absolutely essential to the fabric of the culture. And so, yeah, it was this very ambivalent two-sided narrative that, that encompassed the Roma at that time period. You are the dredges of society, yet you're absolutely ne necessary for our happiness. And so um, those Roma that wish to experience anything resembling a steady income they often chose music because it was the best way to make money. And so therefore, those that wanted to make the most money, they happened to really perfect their skills so that they were completely and perfectly indispensable. We really do see that social status situation in that one anecdote that you share where the Roman musicians show up to a panieri and the guy has a good He's carrying a guitar, instead yeah. Instead of a, what's a lauta. A lauta, right, which yeah. has to be related to lute. It is a lute. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, your average word. Greek will just say it's a lute, but yeah. the proper way of saying it is lauto, and it's not a it's not a proper lute. Uh, no, no, but yeah. I mean, I, the word, I'm just saying historically, yeah. Yes, but yeah, but yeah, and the, basically they're going to like beat They're going to beat him up because he's carried a guitar to their panieri and they've never had a guitar at their panieri. So yeah. it's like, get out of here, servant, and yeah. go get the go right get, instrument. Go get the right instrument, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, there are a lot of anecdotes like that in the book that demonstrate that there that the Roma have always experienced a precarious existence. Uh, in fact, the next book that I'm working on is essentially about the murder of a very, very gifted Roma musician in 1922 in the region, where it demonstrates this kind of strange possessiveness, this notion of treating the musicians as your own personal property, your own territory. Right, right. So yeah, and that rings true throughout the whole region. I mean, now nowadays, in the in the twenty first century, there are many more Greek musicians who are not Roma at all. 
Right. Uh, because, well, it's cool to be a musician. I mean, we, we all know that, like, if you're a musician, you pick up girls. Right, right. And right. so, yeah, I mean, what Greek wouldn't want to become a musician? For a time, Roma musicians were kind of on the DL about being Roma. They were not. Right. But now that's cool, too. Among the younger generation of the Roma musicians, it's very, very, very hip to be Roma. Among the oldest retired musicians, they do not want to admit that they were Roma. Yeah. So you can get away with it on both ends of the spectrum. I mean, there are even Greek, there are even Greeks who try to pass as Roma, but you, there's just too many very idiosyncratic social links among the Roma that uh, uh, your typical Greek can't pull it off. You were, we were talking about the relationship between the musicians and the and the and the people, and there's this idea in the book of playing in that the yeah. musicians play in to the dancers at the Panagyria. Yeah. Once again, this is something that derives from classical Arabic music theory, Thadab, uh, where essentially a musician is trained to perform in such a way that they can elicit an emotional response in a listener who is trained to be very receptive to what's being played. And so it forms a feedback loop of both virtuosity and then genuine emotional response. And it feeds back and forth until the listener reaches a state of ecstasy is probably the best way of putting it. And so at the Panayiri, um, you typically will ask for a dance, pay for a dance, and then you dance the dance as the lead dancer, not as a member of the group, not mm. as a member of the circle, but as the lead dancer. And at some certain point in time, the very gifted musician, typically the, the clarino, the clarinetist, he'll be watching you the whole time like a hawk, like a, like a snake ready to send down its prey. Mm. And, it's, and he's, what he's trying to do, he's trying to figure out what you need, what you need to hear, what the tone is that you need to hear. And he will get closer to you and closer to you until the bell almost touches your ear. And then suddenly what was being amplified or what was being heard by everybody is only heard by you. You're only, you're the recipient of that tone. And you just pass over. You just feel inundated by the tone. And the next thing you know, you're opening your eyes and somebody's cradling your arm and you feel whole. And you've, you've, you do these dances now. I do it every time I go there. Right, yeah. right. And sometimes you end up on the floor at home with a big scar on you. Oh, no, 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 no. That, that, that was the result of, of mixing you know, bourbon with Cipro. No, no, no. The effect of the music is always the same. I always get off on it. I get, I get the right thing from it. Were you a guy who danced before you danced at this thing? No, like, no. no. Do I look like a guy who would dance? I'm, I'm thinking no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but you have learned. I'm a guy who these... crawls when I try to dance. But right? do these dances? Yeah. They have steps, and so they have very intricate that. footwork, yeah. very intricate handwork. Everything is very, very uh, formulaic, and you have to learn the dances. And I just... have some. What I, I tend not to request songs that require intricate footwork. <laughs> I, I go for the simpler things. Got so. it. Got it. Maybe the last thing I'll touch on before we wind up, you juxtapose two tunes, one by Blind Willie Johnson yeah. and... Well, I juxtapose Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, right. Cold Was the Ground with um, Alexis Zumbas's Epertico Merloy. There's connections which just cannot be chance. They, <laughs> they, they are sourced from some sort of thing primeval. 
both the Miraloi that Zumbas plays as well as uh, Dark Was a Night, Cold Was a Ground are pentatonic instrumentals that utilize the minor pentatonic uh, in, in the same subkey. And they utilize the same notes, the same alternating structure between major and minor for almost the exact same amount of period of time. They are both deeply spiritual pieces. What uh, Zumbas is playing is a, is a lamentation for the departed, for that which you will never see again. It's a lament. And what Blind Willie Johnson is playing is uh, essentially a Wesleyan hymn where it's, it's uh, based on Jesus realizing that the next day he was going to be crucified, having to go to his father, however, having to leave his disciples on earth. It's once again this kind of uh, spiritual emptiness that one realizes when, uh, when things depart, when things are ceased finally. But there's no discernible lyrics at all. It's, it's essentially an instrumental. A primal moan, yeah. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, I mean, my idea is that what the pentatonic structure of blues implies is that there was something before the blues. And right. what Blind Willie Johnson's piece is, what Alexis Zumba's piece is, they harken back to some sort of uh, essential composition of the human soul. They were something that just came out of us, out of the primal ooze. You know, mm -hmm. this was what we created when we came out of the primal ooze and we first had to mourn. And if I can get away with it without uh, iring, raising the ire of some record company, <laughs> maybe I'll play us out on, on those two. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, who, who cares? Yeah, People right. are dead. <laughs> Christopher King, I have very much enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for being on Think Again. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. And uh, the book is Lament from Iperos, an odyssey into Europe's oldest surviving folk music. Ah, uh ah. -huh.
Mm-hmm.